Fun Ideas Productions presents the Fun Ideas Podcast. Hi, this is Mark Arnold, and welcome to Fun Ideas Podcast number 216. The Fun Ideas Podcast is brought to you in part by Freaky Magazine. I contribute material to every issue, so give it a try. Hey, kids. Have you read Freaky? The magazine of weird humor for freaks like you. Freaky Magazine is a way-out collection of weirdo comics, kooky gags, photo funnies, social satire, and surreal collage. Fifty-two pages of insanity in the tradition of magazines of yore like Cracked, Plop, and Zap. Special offer for Fun Ideas listeners, get a free sample copy in the mail. Made of smelly newsprint and smudgy ink the old-fashioned way. Just message your mailing address to... The Slow Poisoner at gmail.com. That's the Slow Poisoner at gmail.com while supplies last. On sale now is Mark Arlo's latest book called Pac Man, the first animated show based upon a video game. This book tells the story of Pac Man phenomenon and goes through the entire history of the Hanna Barbera Animation Studios. The history of the video game, pre-Pac-Man, the history of Pac-Man, the character, the video game, the spin-off, the merchandise, and the anime TV series. Each and every episode of the classic 1980 series is covered and examined. Plus, Mark Arnold covers how Pac-Man has been honored on various anniversaries, including the 40th anniversary in 2021. A fun read for casual and hardcore Pac-Man and video game fans alike, featuring many character model sheets and other images. Available online through Bear Manor Media, Amazon, and Barnes & Noble. Get your copy today. Friends, have you tried Lee's Comics? Lee's Comics is better than the leading comic book store. Wait a minute. Lee's Comics is the leading comic book store. Based on arbitrary standards set by Lee Hester himself. Lee's Comics was named as one of the 21 best online dealers by PopOptique.com. To shop the Lee's Comics eBay store, go to eBay and search for Lee's Comics, Inc. That's L-E-E-S-C-O-M-I-C-S-I-N-C, period. Don't forget the period. Mention the Fun Ideas podcast when you order, and you'll receive a free bonus gift. Stars of Walt Disney Productions is my latest book out now. I am almost ready to turn in my manuscript for Unconditionally Mad. I'm also working on my TV Cartoons That Time Forgot book, plus articles on Nightmare of the Galloping Ghost and Harvey Superheroes. On today's show, we have the editor and publisher of the Three Stooges Journal and the founder of the Stoogeum. He has written a great new book called A Tour de Farce. Here he is, Gary Lassen. 
Hi, this is Mark Arnold, and welcome to another episode of Fun Ideas Podcast. And on today's episode, we have a guest who is an author, and he's a relative of one of the three Stooges, and his name is Gary Lassen. Uh, welcome, Gary, to the show. How are you? Hello, hello, hello. <laughs> hello. I don't typically do impersonations. I usually leave them to the uh, professional impersonators, but I'm so excited to be on your show, I guess I channeled my inner stooge. And- Yay. <laughs> All right, I'll introduce your book first, and then I'll ask you a couple questions. You did this behemoth book. Ugh, it's heavy. I'm picking it up. Called a tour de farce: the complete history of the three Stooges on the road. And so we're going to talk about this and just all things Stooges for probably about the next hour. And um, the first question, I know the answer, but I'd I'd like you to say it. How are you related to the three Stooges? Uh, my wife's grandfather was Larry Fine's brother. Okay, that's the simple explanation. Uh, interestingly, Larry Fine's brother was named Morris and his nickname was Mo. So Larry went through most of his life with Mo surrounded surrounding him everywhere. <laughs> well he also is uh just as an aside, you know, surrounded by a couple people named Babe. <laughs> you know, yeah, Curly right. was Babe but, and uh Shem's wife was Babe. So you know I guess Babe and Mo are yeah. the, the common denominators here. I don't know. Um Yeah, but when my, my wife was a uh a child growing up, uh, her uncle Larry lived on the West Coast and she lived on the East Coast mm-hmm. and uh, she didn't get to see him very much, but she was always afraid of her uncle Larry because <laughs> uh you know he got slapped and his hair got pulled and he got hurt. And as a little girl, she was just so so frightened by him. Uh so the family decided when he would come to visit, they would tell her that Uncle Max was coming to visit. And for some reason, she fell for this ruse. She was never afraid of Uncle Max, only Uncle Larry. Uh, (laughs) And that's sort of her relationship with her uncle. Uh, When I first started dating her, uh, she let on that she was related to somebody famous, but she was reluctant to spill the beans and tell who it was, as, uh, almost as if she was embarrassed. She was almost embarrassed. And when I finally coaxed out that she was related to Larry Fine, she she was embarrassed, actually. I mean, she she did not take a lot of pride uh, in the fact that she was related to Larry. Me, on the other hand, thought I got to find a way to marry this girl because you know I had dated <laughs> girls that the girls that were smart and pretty and good conversationalists, whatever. But uh, where was I going to find bloodlines like this? So uh, eventually, we did get married, and uh, like I said, her grandfather Mo and Larry were brothers. Now Larry was dead at this point. Uh, but her grandfather, Mo, looked very similar to Larry. Um, and he had the voice. You know, Larry's voice was very distinctive. Right. He had that gravelly sort of Philadelphia code. And his brother, Mo, sounded just like him. And when he would tell jokes in a Jewish dialect or go into a little <laughs> soft shoe routine, it, it was almost like like having Larry find there in person. Wow. <laughs> so, um were you close to Mo Feinberg uh, during those years then? Well, I grew very close to him for a couple of reasons. First of all, my own grandfathers were dead at this point. Mm. Uh, and Mo Feinberg, um, he had two daughters and he had five grand. He had all all women in the, in the family and wow. no no uh, sons or grandsons. And none of the women were interested in the Stooges. None of them. Um, <laughs> and he only wanted to he only wanted to talk Stooges. He only wanted to talk. He was so proud of his brother. He only wanted to talk about the Stooges and his brother. And they didn't care. Man. So when I came along and I was sort of interested in, um, you know, hearing about it, um, 
he took me under his wing and uh, I started collecting Stooges stuff, which uh, was new to me. I'd always been a baseball card collector, which had been pretty boring because all the cards were the same size, you know, and there's only two poses. The batter was in his batting stance. The pitcher was in his follow through. And uh, <laughs> he showed me that, uh, you know, look, he had a comic book. He had a record. I thought, you know what, let me see if I can start collecting Stooges stuff. And I found that it was an unbelievably great hobby because it wasn't easy to find the stuff, but it was out there. It was so varied. It was so varied. You know, there were puppets and dolls and statues and games and posters and stills and press books and, you know, all kinds of stuff out there if you looked in the right places. But you had to work a little to get it. So it was there was a change. It was a great hobby for me. And I sort of was a snowball going down the mountain. Mm -hmm. um, now, I'm going to ask you a few questions about Mo Feinberg just because. Uh, now, in a lot of write-ups about the Stooges, you don't hear about him all that much. I mean, what was he doing all the years the Stooges and Larry were performing? Uh, he was a window dresser. Hmm. The wind. Well, he wanted he wanted to go into vaudeville, mm -hmm. uh, but he was a he called himself a hoofer, so which was a dancer. Uh, he fancied himself as a dancer, uh, not like a, a musician or a comic like Larry, like his brother Larry. But he, Mo Feinberg, didn't like to travel. He was a homebody, mm -hmm. and the vaudeville life required living on the road and larry and his wife mabel they just loved that life right from when they were in high school almost but but mo feinberg it was not for him so he, did, he didn't go into show business uh he would take the window displays in uh department stores and dress them up for whatever the occasion was so if it was a christmas display he'd put the you know all the stuff in the window uh now it's time for uh you know father's day he would make the displays or whatever so um that's what he wound up doing for a living and uh when he was about 75 or 80 he decided he was going to write a book about his brother and uh and he did mm -hmm. and yeah the name of that book is larry the stooge in the middle if i remember correctly right <laughs> yeah uh when i met him it was he was going to call it um, my brother was a movie star. And I said, look, I like your book, but the title, <laughs> I'm not sure the, the title was so great. So that, yeah, it was eventually called Larry the Stooge in the Middle. Right. Now, um, obviously he started uh, the Three Stooges fan club that you now, I guess, run. Is that correct? Is that how it works? Correct, yeah. And uh, um, passed away yeah. in, in 19, 1986, Mo Feinberg passed okay. away. Um, what prompted him to start a fan club at the, club at the time he did? Well, he didn't start the club. It was another fellow named Ralph Schiller who oh, started the club about a, a few years earlier. Yeah, and uh, okay. Ralph was in the service and really didn't have the time to devote to the club. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, Mo was in this club and he had time on his hands. He was retired. So uh, he volunteered to step forward since he had the name and the cachet and he, the instant respect of the members. Uh, he thought he could do a newsletter, and he did on his typewriter. Mm -hmm. And uh, m most of the letters of the alphabet worked on his typewriter. You know, if if, uh, <laughs> if, if the I didn't work, he used the number one or whatever. You know, uh, he did what he had to do, the L or whatever. So, um, you know, he did the uh, newsletter for, for years. But, you know, as an 80-year-old man with a heart condition, he wasn't always timely with the newsletters. Yeah. He did the best that he could. Uh, and he passed away in 1986. And quite honestly, I thought the fan club was going to die. Right. Um, but when I went uh, over to his house after he passed and I was looking through the unanswered mail, 
that he got from the members, I was really struck by something. The, the members were, every, almost all of them said, you know what, ever, I, ever since I can remember, I've loved the Stooges. That was sort of a common thread that I was reading. And um, your your newsletter is the only piece of mail I look forward to getting. You know, and all <laughs> my, my mailbox is always filled with junk mail and bills. But when that Three Stooges journal comes, I'm, I'm so excited. And you know, I was really touched by these letters, and I thought, you know, I got to try to keep this going. I, it would be a shame for this to just die out. Um, I didn't know anything about running a fan club. I didn't know, <laughs> you know, and truthfully, what was I going to write about, Mark? I mean, the Stooges had been dead for years. They weren't making any new films. So what, there was nothing to review. There was, no, you know, they weren't on tour. Uh, I had no idea what I was going to do. So I came up with an issue, and I, I, in my message for the president, I begged for help from the members. And it was sort of like when the starting quarterback goes down and the rest of the team sort of rises to the occasion and rallies around him. The members said, We're, they did whatever they started sending me news clippings and photographs. You know, I asked for help, send me stuff. And they did. Mm -hmm. um, it, it was very similar to like what happens when the, when the players step up when the starter goes down. So all of a sudden I was swamped with not only stuff, but people who volunteered to write for me. We, we had, there were some frustrated writers that had no outlet. They wanted to write Stooges. None of you know, their wives didn't care. None of their friends cared about the Stooges. But now they had a here was an audience of other fans that maybe they, they could write for. So I, I had a couple of guys that were really good that wrote some pieces. And here it is. Uh, how many years later? 40 some yeah. years later. The Stooges <laughs> are still not touring. They're still not making any films. <laughs> but we're still finding stuff to uh, to write about all these years later. I think the latest I have here is number 185, spring 2023. So, <laughs> well, I took over at issue uh, 39. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I've been doing, I did 150 issues times 16 pages, however much that is. Wow. For the mathematicians out there in the, uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I, I don't know which issue I started with, but it was when Mo was still doing it. And, uh, because my, I always liked the Stooges since about early 70s. 273 or something from tv and stuff like that and um a, a story i have this one's about mo howard is one time i was living in los angeles area at the time and they go my mom says oh mo howard's going to be on tv and i go oh great because i was watching the shorts all the time and i thought he would look like he does in the movies i didn't think about the movies being 20 30 40 years old <laughs> even in the 1970s and so mm -hmm. out walks this doddering old man with uh white hair and it's like wow he's aged <laughs> and i go oh but he sounds like mo i guess that is mo okay and i think soon after he started doing those mike douglas shows and everything like that uh -huh. so i got used to old mo uh but uh, i never knew there was a fan club or anything or any other interest until that um i think it was the three stooges uh scrapbook that came out that book uh, that in the early 80s mid 80s yeah yeah and so then yeah. i said oh there's a fan club i'll join up and so yeah. that's when i first subscribed so i know yeah. mo had been mo feinberg had been doing it for at least a couple of years at that point so and yeah. then well, the, the, I, other, the other thing that happened when i uh took over i i, I sort of sought out some help from uh a fellow who was running the Marx Brothers Club. And he was running a, a fellow named Paul Wesolowski, and he was running a club called the Marx Brotherhood. Hmm. So he lived nearby in New Hope. It was about a half hour, 45 minute ride. He invited me out to his place, to his townhouse. And I went out there and the guy was living in a veritable Marx Brothers museum. I mean, he was eating lunch off his Marx Brothers plates and he had a Marx Brothers alarm clock and shower curtain. And he had all kinds of rare stuff on the walls and 
a light went off in my head that someday I got I'm going to have a place like this. It's going to be Stooges someday. But the only catch was that Paul was a single guy. He was living alone. He had nobody telling him, you know, how to decorate his house. <laughs> I had somebody who was afraid of Larry Fine living in my house. So that that, that person was <laughs> never going to have. You know, I knew I was never going to have Stooge stuff on the walls of my house. Right. Uh, so to get around that, I sort of had to build a museum <laughs> a few years later, which is what I did. But I, the, the idea uh, started back uh, in 1986 when I went to Paul Wesolowski's and I saw uh, his living conditions and I just thought, man, this is, I'm going to have a place like this someday. Yeah. And that's the Stoogeum. I see a the lot Stoogeum, of, yeah. in the yeah. front of your Tour de Force book. Uh, first book. Um, it shows quite a number of celebrity uh, people who've shown up over the years that you've taken photographs in front of the uh, museum. Well, I don't know if they're celebrities. They're, they're celebrities in the students' world. Right, because, right. Uh, well, you know, uh, there's a couple uh, beyond it, like maybe Leonard Malton or something. You know? uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, no, kind of... uh, but uh, anyone who appeared in a Stooges film is royalty. They are royalty to the Stooges fans. Uh, even if they were just a little baby in the film, they were only two years old and they were in, in, the, in the film, they said nothing. And now they're, you know, 70 years old. They are worshipped. So uh, relatives and uh, supporting players that appeared in their films, uh, yeah, we treat them like royalty for sure. When they visited the Stoogeum, uh, I tried to document their their visits for sure, yeah. Now, I don't want to get in any sort of controversy or anything if you're not comfortable talking about it, but I mean, do you get along with like the other family members? I know there was some time where the family members of Mo Howard and the family members of Curly and of uh, Curly Joe and things like that, there was a little bit of friction there. Is everything kind of smoothly handled with all the different families nowadays? Uh, I'd say yes. I mean, truthfully, litigation amongst the Stooges goes back to when they were alive. The Stooges <laughs> were alive themselves. And, um, you know, when Curly Howard left the act and he was replaced by Shemp, mm -hmm. there were issues then. There were issues mm -hmm. then. What should happen to Curly? Should Curly get any money? He's not in the act anymore, but people are still coming to see them. And a lot of them were expecting to see Curly. And then, and then the, in later years, they're, they're, they're selling merchandise with Curly's likeness on it, for example, and during the later years in the 60s. So there were issues and, and lawsuits amongst the various students, unfortunately, going back many years. Hmm. Um, most of that all is in, is behind. And you've got uh, the relatives working together pretty much, um, you know, as, as best they can in different ways. And in their different ways. And I don't do the same things the other people do. Right. Um, but the goal is the same. The goal is the same and try to get future generations of of people to uh, get a, get exposed to the films and enjoy the film. So uh, we go about it in different ways, maybe. But um, I think the situation right now is good. Right. Um, have they any of those other family members uh, had uh, any chance to comment on your book or did they help contribute to your book? At all? Oh, OK. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I slipped in my inner student. Um, I, I'm not sure. First of all, the book is so big. I don't think anyone has actually read the book yet because I haven't to, to read actually, it all the way. I'm trying to, but yeah, it's, there, it's, there may be some people that have uh, that have gone through the captions of the photos. I don't know, but it's yeah. it's you're not going to be getting through that book uh, anytime soon. But um, no, I'm on good terms with with uh, with Curly's grandsons and Larry's uh, great grandsons and uh, and certainly Larry's family because I'm part of Larry's family and uh, mm -hmm. you know, Dorita, Dorita and Besser don't really have. Um, family other than the in-laws the uh that run the comedy three so they don't have any people of my generation to uh you know uh, 
commiserate with or whatever, for, for lack of a better expression. Yeah. Because I know for the longest time, you know, it was basically Joan Howard Moore kind of carrying the torch on the bookend and she published a number of books. But then, you know, now other people have come forward and, you know, I like different points of view and stuff like that. So, I, you know, I'm very happy. Well, you know, the uh, the Howard family sort of dominated the view of students' history since the beginning of time. And for good reason, because was he, Mo was there and Mo lived it. Yeah. Uh, but, but unfortunately, as we've examined some of the stuff, like in Mo's autobiography, we've just found that some of the stuff just doesn't hold up to you know, the test of time. Right. Um, you know, Mo didn't research his book. He wrote it from memory. And mm. uh, in, in his memory were 50 years of travels that stops at hundreds of theaters and in, in hundreds of small towns, big towns and circus tents and theaters and military bases. And you can imagine it'd be very, very easy to get some names and dates and places confused and he did mm -hmm. um which sort of threw the historians amongst us off because we relied on a lot of this information as truth and we've been unable to verify some of it and found that some of it you know just is you know needs rewriting some some of the students history needs rewriting and i've sort of attempted to do some of that in my book because most of what I've discovered was based on contemporaneous newspaper reports and advertisements and things like that that are based on verifiable facts uh, as opposed to conjecture that this one said this, this one said that. Um, so we're able to now with uh, the digitization of newspapers and being to access uh, you know, content that we couldn't before, we can verify some dates, some places and venues. And that's what this book does because there's about 1,500 of them in there. Right. Now, um, how long did it take you to do this? I'll have to say this first before you answer is just, this is the book that I've dreamed of ever since I got the Three Stooges scrapbook in 1983 because it talks about them doing live performance, but it just, that's it. They just kind of talk, oh yeah, they did live performance. And I go, when, where, how, who, how? You know, <laughs> it's like, this is the book I wanted in 1983. But hey, 40 years later, it's not too bad. I'll take yeah. it. But how, how long did it take you to do all the research? Well, the book, the genesis of this book, it dates to the late 1990s. I mean, I, I, it, it, I was standing in line behind somebody who was wearing a Rolling Stones t-shirt. It was a, it was the Rolling Stones Steel Wheels Tour. Mm -hmm. And this shirt listed the various dates, the Stones. It said Birmingham, Alabama, March 16th, Chattanooga, March 18th. And I thought, wow, that's great. The Stones, this is 10 years after that tour took place. The Stones have documented all the places they went. I, I wish we had something like that for the Stooges. And I just sort of shrugged it off. Uh, a few weeks later, I saw another person wearing a tour shirt, not for the Stones, but for an unknown group, an unknown group like the uh, the Young Mouse Pads or whatever yeah. it was. And, <laughs> and the Young Mouse Pads probably only existed for 30 days, but their whole tour thing was on a shirt there. <laughs> I thought, and that really made me mad because the Stooges toured for 50 years and none of it, none of it was documented. But the Young Mouse Pads, their whole history is... So it just, it, just for fun, I had no intention of writing a book. Just for fun, I started an Excel spreadsheet and I decided to go through my collection and look for the dates. I had playbills and I had some programs, some ticket stubs. There were some photos with dates on the back. Let's see how many, let's see what I can do. Mm -hmm. So I started compiling the spreadsheet and it was all like a crossword puzzle. It's not, at the beginning, it's a little tough. You don't have anything filled in, right. but then you get some critical mass going, you know? And when you have the first two letters, and the last three letters, then you can sort of maybe fill in the blanks. So that's, I started to be able to do detective, little detective work. So let's say I knew they were in Cleveland the first week of May and they're in Philadelphia the third week. Where were they the second week? I look at a map. What's between Cleveland and Philadelphia? Here's Pitts, Pittsburgh. I thought it was Pittsburgh. I would go to the Library of Congress. 
Electro Mike Pittsburgh microphone. Yes, there it is, Pittsburgh. And so I would piece it together that way. Wow. Um, but the sources of information, um, let's put it this way: that that Rolling Stones uh, T-shirt, yeah, that Rolling Stones T-shirt. No stones were left unlisted for this book. No stones were left unturned. No <laughs> stones were left unturned. So I solicited help from the club members. I said, "Hey, I'm, I'm doing this project. I'm going to try to compile lists of appearance dates." Take a look at your programs, your playbills, your photo. Send me whatever dates you can send me. And people made photocopies of their stuff and sent it to me. And I would add it to the, you know, I'd check it out. Some people just sent stories. They said, I, I remember seeing the students at the Valley Forge Music Fair, you know, in 1962. I would just keep their notes. They didn't remember the exact date. Right. But I would just keep all the information and try to compile it. Now, back in those days, there was no digital newspapers on your computer. You couldn't you couldn't just type in Stooges to get any results. You had to go look at microfilm on a clunky old machine from the 1920s. I remember those. <laughs> the Philadelphia Library, where, where I live, only had access to Philadelphia newspapers and the New York Times. And that was it. Nothing else on microfilm. So I, I learned that if I went to the Library of Congress, which was a three hour, supposed to be a three hour ride, but it always took five hours, the three hour ride down 95, that they had all the major newspapers from the major cities from the 1930s and 40s. And if I knew a date to look for, I could, you know, narrow down, I could find an advertisement and narrow down the date. So I started making, you know, once, twice a year trips there. Uh, and I got a ton of information there, a ton. The problem was they didn't have smaller towns. They had, you know, big cities. But they didn't have the smaller towns. And a lot of times the students were playing in smaller towns. So it didn't have everything, but then there were gaps. Uh, meanwhile, around 2005, 2010, that was the big break because newspapers were starting to get digitized. And you could, from your home, type in Stooges and get results that you didn't know about now all of a sudden this was a major breakthrough not having to drive five hours and also getting an access to little teeny weeny newspapers you know not just uh, the big cities uh so that was a tremendous help i the, um i can't begin to tell you i couldn't have done the book without the uh without the digit digitization of the, of the newspapers the other big break i got was mo howard's estate got auctioned off in 2019 and mo was a saver of everything he <laughs> saved everything and there was such a treasure trove of stuff about personal appearances it was unbelievable um he used to write letters home on the hotel stationery mm. so the hotel stationery gave evidence as to what cities they were in what hotel they stayed in where they were going next because he would write home he would write these letters home so uh that was a treasure trove of information um that, that really really helped you know uh, put things together. Uh, I found that uh, a lot of cities have an ask a librarian feature online that you can, for a small research fee, ask a librarian. Uh, I heard the students were in Mobile, Alabama in March of 1927. Can you check for me? Blah, blah, blah. Uh, I found the local historical societies. They were more than happy to help. They were history buffs. They wanted a project to do, you know. I heard the students, students were in Mobile. What I could, so, and so uh, I, I made use of them. Um, I, I did whatever I could to put this together. I really did. Um, and, you know, 765 pages. <laughs> now, um, you say that there's you, no stone left unturned. Um, I think you said you got like 90 to 95%. I mean, how likely is it in the next few years that you could uncover a whole cachet of 
other appearances that you just didn't get, or you pretty much. It's not. It's everything. not. It's not likely. It's that's the reason it's not likely is because I, I've accounted for mostly all the time. Okay. So you know, there's this like they were on tour for the summer of 1936, the whole June, July, and August. There's one week I don't know where they were. There's yeah. only one week I don't know where they were. There weren't seven different appearances. There, they were probably one place for the whole week. Right. Uh, the ones that are, the ones that are hard to discover, they'll never be discovered, or you know, onesies here and there are the charitable appearances at hospitals and uh, military bases and things like that. Because typically, if they went to a hospital, they didn't advertise it. They didn't want right. the publicity. They just went every once in a while. There would be a photographer there where they would capture the moment. Um, but a lot of them were spur of the moment visits to these hospitals and uh, things like military base performance performances were not advertised to the public because they weren't open to the public. They were for the guys on the base. So um, there's a lot of shows like that that we probably won't find out about. Mm. Um, the other ones are the small towns where they did a one night stand here, one night stand there. The circulation of the town newspaper is about 3000 from 1946. None of the papers survive. Um, right. So I know I don't have, I know there's, a couple hundred appearances out there I don't have, but I have 90%. I think, I, like I said in the book, 90 95% of them. Yeah. Did they ever tour outside the United States or no? Uh, minimally. Okay. Minimally. Uh, in 1939, they went to the British Isles and uh, they played a couple weeks in London, mm. Blackpool, Dublin. And um, they also did a couple in a week in uh, Puerto Rico. Uh, they played Canada a couple times where they did the uh, Canadian National Exhibition and the Calgary Stampede. So they did events like that. Um, not too much out of the country travel. Right. And I know somewhere in the book you had a listing of like the venues that they commonly played over the years. You know, I know it was like 20 different places that they were pretty well, much you know, they, they, they traveled, the they traveled by train for the most part during the main years, they were traveling by train and the trains, they, you know, there were certain routes that they took. They often would start in Chicago and then head East. And, you know, there were certain stops they would make along the way. And typically they stop in Cleveland and Pittsburgh and Philly and, you know, Baltimore, New York, Boston. And um, so they would go to the same, you know, a lot of times in a, in a town, there were one, only one or two, vaudeville theaters there were theaters that showed just movies but then there were also theaters that had vaudeville performances and so uh you know like in chicago they always played at the oriental theater that was their theater in chicago and in philadelphia they always played at the earl theater that was that was their theater mm -hmm. um, was there any particular era that was really difficult to research like i would be thinking the earlier stuff you know with ted helian before but you tell me <laughs> uh well, that's a good question. Yeah, you know, truthfully, I think some of the stuff in the '60s was harder because they were hmm. playing little rinky-dink little places. You know, they were playing. <laughs> you know, uh, in the later '60s, they were doing um, you know county fairs and right. housing development openings and really bizarre stuff. Um, so, I, some of those were kind of hard to discover, more so than the stuff you know during the '20s and '30s, actually. Hmm. Interesting. Um... Now, what kept them going? Uh, was it because Larry was a compulsive spender and they needed to keep working? Or were, did they just like life on the road as well as doing the films? Um, I think it's like many entertainers and athlete, and athletes, too. They don't know. That's all they know. And they don't know when to stop. They don't know how to stop. And musicians. Yeah. Sometimes they're all all three of those categories can be, you know, past their prime. 
But yeah. that's their life. That's what they do. That's what they want to do. That's all they know. They're, that's their comfort zone. And I think that's I think that's what it was. Uh, you know, Larry Larry left. He was a teenager, and his, Larry and his wife were teenagers when they were traveling <laughs> on the road. I mean, yeah. for, 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 that's all. That's what they did. They 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 lived in hotels. So you know, that's his wife got so accustomed to the room service and maid service that they lived in hotels in real life. Yeah, uh, for God, that was you know. <laughs> He didn't. Larry didn't buy a house until he was like in his fifties. Um, so uh, they, I think, all the Stooges, um, they liked the travel. They liked being on the road. And when they were on the road, it wasn't just for a week or two. They were on the road for four months, five months, six months at a time, mm-hmm. six months at a time, and living out of a you know one of those big footlockers that they would uh, you know tote around with a wardrobe of you know two or three suits and two or three sports jackets, and, and that was live off of that for four, five, six months. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll I'll ask you this, but I'll tell you the one that I think is the biggest revelation. Because when I first when I look at a book, I don't just pick it up and start reading page one. I like to flip through it and look up certain things, and then I start at the beginning. So, um, I basically cheat. <laughs> so I went to the Joe Besser years first because I was kind of curious about that because three stooges scrapbook claimed that there was they only did one appearance and so i was like hmm i wonder if that's true and then you found out that they did exactly zero appearances so that was like a big revelation to me um was that like a big revelation to you or was there something even grander in the grand scheme of discovery on all this well this was one i gotta tell you this was one of the most frustrating (laughs) research projects of my life Mm mm-hmm because I was trying so, so hard to find the details of this Besser appearance that they wrote about in the scrapbook. <laughs> and I couldn't find anything about it. I couldn't find anything about it, which was frustrating because, like you said, it wasn't like 1920 or 1930. This was supposedly like 1958. Right. So... I started looking through the Los Angeles Times newspapers for the ad. They didn't give the date in the scrapbook. Okay, I'll look through day by day for the ad. And I couldn't find it. I just couldn't find it. I went, Ten times I looked for this ad. I spent so much time looking for this ad. But I was suspicious about a couple things. I was suspicious about a couple things. First of all, all three of those students, Mo, Larry, and Joe Besser, wrote autobiographies. Mm-hmm. Not one of them mentioned this live appearance of Besser in their autobiographies. Second of all, if there was an appearance with Besser and Mo and Larry, there would be some surviving photographs or autographs or something because we've got surviving photographs and autographs and stuff like that from the 30s and 40s. From, from when they toured, they always, they didn't shy away from pictures. They always went out of their way to pose and sign. So why I was a little curious if there's no photos, none of the students wrote about it in their biographies. Something just didn't quite add up, but I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't figure it out. So the result is by accident, um, I discovered an ad in a Portland, Oregon newspaper (laughs) pictured Mo, Larry, and Joe Besser as appearing in person. (laughs) And I thought, what? It should be Joe Dorita. This is 1959. And the more I looked at the ad, I said, this is the ad that they pictured in the scrapbook and used as the evidence that there was a Besser appearance. So it turns out what happens, the promoter of the show mistakenly pictured Joe Besser in the advertisement instead of Joe Dorita. (laughs) The writers of Scrapbook saw this ad, 
didn't know that it was a mistake and figured there was a Joe Besser appearance and wrote it up as if it took place when, in fact, there was no such appearance. Um, <laughs> I, I almost blew my top when I figured this out, um, <laughs> piecing this together. And then I went back and looked at some of the other stuff that I should have noticed. And, um, you know, there were other things about how they gave away a pen at this appearance. Some things just didn't sound right. Anyway, the, my book basically debunks the fact that Besser made an appearance with the Stooges. He never did. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the reason that he didn't want to go on tour with them, the reason they gave him the scrapbook was that his wife was ill and he didn't want to leave his mm-hmm. ill wife and blah, blah, blah. And maybe his wife wasn't in the best of health. But I think he was had no interest in going on the road because he had spent much of his life on the road. Besser had spent you know, more time on the road than Mo and Larry even because he didn't have as much of a film contract. Right. So he was on the road constantly. He was done with life on the road. And I think that's the reason he didn't really want to participate going forward. Yeah. Uh, and they, they really were pretty lucky to hook up with Joe Dorita. I know most people are not big Joe Dorita fans. I'm certainly not a huge Dorita fan. But at, at the time... He was the right guy in the right place. Right, for I their always audience. say that. Yeah, <laughs> but it is ironic. One more Besser statement that you do have a photograph of Besser's a steamer trunk. So it's like, wait a minute. <laughs> you know? Well, Besser um, left. The, you know, Besser left home at, at a young age. Yeah. Besser left home. I don't know. He was like twelve years old, thirteen years yeah. old. He left home to to yeah. uh, to perform in magic with Thurston the magician. And, yeah. Uh, you know, he was a, he wanted to perform. He wanted to be on stage, and yeah. he traveled uh, extensively from from his teenage years yeah. till you know for, forever. Yeah, it's just uh, ironic that he never ever made an appearance with the Stooges. That's, that's yeah. yeah. Were there any other things uh, that really you know you expose like that? They're just like awe-inspiring and jaw-dropping that you go, I didn't know this like that. <laughs> I don't think it was awe-inspiring or jaw-dropping. I, I was surprised to see how many uh, charity appearances and military-based appearances that the students make. They mentioned that, you know, in Scrapbook. And a lot of the Mo Howard stuff uh, talks about, you know, how they did these shows or whatever. But um, they did a lot of them. They did a lot of them, and they did they did a lot of uh, goodwill visits. So you know, most of the shows they did were at nighttime. So they had a lot of time during the day with nothing to do. Mm-hmm. And they made use of it by going to visit hospitals and uh, orphanages and things like that. You know, sometimes unannounced, they would just you know ask the theater manager what's you know what's a nearby uh, children's hospital, and they would just stop by. Um, so I was always uh, that. That's not really a revelation, but I was really you know a lot of times when you uh, look into somebody that you're fond of, you find out stuff you didn't want to find out. You know, you find out stuff that you know you wish you hadn't found out. But um, that's not the case with this book. Uh, you know, I didn't learn anything uh, in my research that made me think, oh, I... in fact, it was the opposite, really. Uh, just to find how welcome they were to their fans and mm-hmm. uh, uh, the, fa- the fan stories about meeting them in person. Um, mm-hmm. I can't begin to tell you how many fans in the 1970s said, you know, I, I looked Mo Howard's name up in the phone book and there he was in the phone book. So I went over to his house. I knocked <laughs> on his door and Mrs. Howard invited me in for milk and cookies. Wow. <laughs> Mrs. Howard invited me in. Can you imagine today and today's with somebody, you know, going up to a celebrity's house, finding, first of all, finding a celebrity listed in the, in the phone book, right. knocking on the door, you know, no, uh, no gate, no, no security right. detail. No. And having, uh, having the wife invite you in for milk. Cookies. That's, that's the kind of, that's what the students were. Now, um, I know like in later years, Norman Moore kind of was their de facto agent, if not actual agent. But in the early years, who kind of organized all these performances and trips and everything like that? Was it Mo or somebody else? 
No, Mo just signed. He just signed the contract. Oh, yeah. They, they had they had agents yeah, like the uh, William Morris agency oh, okay. uh, was agent. Yeah, they they had real, real uh, agencies who worked to book tours together, and then there were uh, booking agents that helped with the process. That you know, but they do, people that took took a piece of the action along the way. Okay. Uh, uh, you know, the manager I'm thinking took about ten percent probably, and a booking agent might have taken five percent, and uh, then what was left is to just paid Eddie Lawton their straight man and then they split what was left so right that's and I think that's how the money worked roughly did, did this agency how, how did they work in conjunction with like Columbia Pictures so there's no conflicts like if they had a shooting schedule obviously they couldn't be in tour at the same time unless it happened well, on side where they were touring or whatever yeah uh, yeah their first obligation was to Columbia Pictures and mm-hmm. um once their obligations to Columbia were clear, they were free to do what they wanted. And typically they would utilize that time to go out and do as much touring as they could. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I found was they didn't take days off. I mean, they they were on the road. They were on the road to make money. And that's where there were very, very few days off. If, if you see some gaps in my book where they're unaccounted for, it's more likely that I just couldn't figure out where they were. than <laughs> it was it was days off. Now, sometimes if they had to travel from, let's say, Chicago to philadelphia overnight you know they weren't going to, it wasn't going to be the next day it'd be two right. days later because the train trip was just too long so depending right. on the travel distance there may be a day or two off but uh, if there was a week off it wasn't usually intended it was might be something else that came up that uh you know that kept them from working because they they were they were pretty much workaholics yeah uh, it looked like they toured America. most years at least in the 30s and 40s like all year round mm-hmm. You know, right now, uh, <laughs> what happened, unfortunately, is in the mid 40s is Curly started to become ill and uh, his illness really started to impact their tour schedules, uh, probably around late 1943 and certainly in 1944. Mm-hmm. So there were a couple of years where their travel was very, very curtailed uh, because of Curly's ill health. Uh, and unfortunately, by the time, you know, he was replaced by Shemp or whatever, the popularity of the students started waning because uh their films weren't going to be shown in as many in theaters as they used to be. Uh, mm-hmm. Double features were starting to come into play, and short subjects were sort of on the way out. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, they worked when they could. Mm-hmm. Now, you you kind of talk about this a little bit in the book, from what I've read already. But uh, what was a live Stooge performance like? What type of skits would they perform? I think you said the Maharaja and the stand-in sketch were kind of perennials and things like well, that. Well, there were but... two there were two staples to the live act. One of the staples were skits, like you mentioned. So mm-hmm. uh the Maharaja sketch was something that a lot of the Stooges fans know from their films, uh, where Curly plays this blind Middle Eastern Raja and he has to throw knives and he has no idea where he's throwing them, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And uh what most people don't realize, and I didn't realize this either, was uh they worked on this act as part of their live show before incorporating it into their films. Mm. They worked on this as a live thing before incorporating it into this films. So it was sort of the backwards uh, way that like a <laughs> rock group does it. The rock group records their thing in the studio, perfects it on the studio, blah, blah, blah. Then they take it out on the road and do it live. You know, and people don't know the song, but the studios sort of, did this stuff live and were able to see what went over live and mm. the things that went over well live they thought you know what we this could translate into our film so they sort of did it the reverse yeah. so that was like a, a short story long uh so skits little skits where they played roles was part of the live on stage act 
the onstage act could not replicate the films because it was stripped down to the bare bones. There were no you know, tech uh, special effects that could be done, only a minimal amount of sound effects. There were no supporting players to work off of. So by necessity, the live act couldn't really replicate uh, the films. Uh, the other thing they did on stage, which really was the bulk of the stage act, is what the reviewers called patter, patter, which was a running dialogue back and forth between one stooge and the other and this and that, you know, one stooge and the other stooge. Uh, and the back and forth patter mixed in with a song, mixed in with a skit. Then the, the somebody else would do their act. Then the stooges might come back and do another bit. It depended on, on the show. Sometimes they did their whole thing in one 12-minute block. Sometimes they did two or three minutes, came back, done another two or three minutes. So it really depended on how their uh, that vaudeville night was set up. Excuse me. Mm-hmm. Um, the patter, which was the back and forth, remains remarkably constant. Hmm. For a long time, from the Ted Healy <laughs> era up to, you know, they they it was kind of evolutionary. It certainly was not revolutionary. The way these jokes, you know, what's your name? George Washington. Oh, were you the one that cut down the cherry tree? Nah, I ain't worked in a year and a half. Slap. You know, have you ever heard of Abraham Lincoln? Nice to meet you, stranger. Slap. You know, um, so they would do this in the 1920s and 30s, and they would continue it into the 40s and 50s, and <laughs> and, and still do these these jokes, these these corny, you know, a lot of corny. You know, you going fishing? Yeah. You got worms? Yeah, but I'm going anyway. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, they they would do this cornball, you know, comedy back and forth. Um, mm-hmm. Some of the stuff was considered, uh, you know, blue material uh that went over in cities pretty well others no you know their sensibilities were offended by it mm-hmm. um but for the most part they did the same barrel of jokes not it was never in the same order never mm-hmm. in the same order mo <laughs> would be the leader and he would just you know not improvise but he would draw on the same 15 or 20 uh, things and the other students would follow would follow off of it interesting Okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, and now uh, to kind of ask this, there's no recordings of any of these live shows. I think you said that there's like some Super 8 footage and that's about it or 16. There's millimeter. a lot. There's some silent footage. There's yeah. some silent footage. There's some yeah. color footage of them, you know, slapping and poking, but nothing that would replicate, a, you know, a, a sound recording with mm. with uh, <laughs> video, uh, unfortunately. Um, yeah. Because it'd be interesting to see like a film of them performing in the 30s and then them performing in the 60s and just seeing the same jokes, the same situation. Yeah, well, there's you know, one that changed over the years too, but yeah. <laughs> uh, there's one short that they did at MGM with Ted Healy called Plain Nuts. Mm-hmm. And uh, that is the closest thing that we have to the vaudeville act of the 1930s. So if you have spare time, I might take a look at that. Uh, it's interspersed yeah. with a lot of dance routines and other stuff, but, but that sort of somewhat replicates the, uh, the onstage acts. You know, they, they did a lot of routines where, you know, Ted tries to sing a song and he's constantly interrupted. Uh, the, the interruption theme is students did that a lot where one student would try to do something and he'd constantly get interrupted and never finish what he started. Right. <laughs> they start singing a song. They start singing a song about Nelly, their girlfriend, Nelly, and they would never finish the song. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Um, well, uh, just a, an aside based on what you had said about uh, things were done on stage before they be put on film. Marx Brothers did that in the early days too. You know, the earliest films. You know, oh, like, that, yeah. that was like they take it on on the road just to kind of perfect the different performances, and then that became the feature film. You know, but a little bit different way of working. But they did it on stage first just to get audience reactions. So similar to the studios in that regard. So. Mm-hmm. Well, the students um, had no out- film outlet for the longest time. They were only on stage, so they they weren't really frequently appearing on stage uh, or film until uh, 1933. So they were been started working with Healy in 1923. So you know, Mo and Shemp, whatever, had ten years of you know non-film experience built up uh, before they were even given an outlet to perform on film. Right. Now it seems like it's pretty easy, somewhat, to get their final ap- appearance uh, on stage, but. Was it difficult to find their very first appearance, or is there documentation saying this is when I first appeared on stage, according to Mo Howard or something? <laughs> uh, the first appearance of Mo coming up on stage with Ted Healy, uh, we'll never know what that is. Okay. <laughs> so Mo, Mo and so, Shemp joined Healy in 1923. We don't know which one joined first. Mm-hmm. Or if they joined together, uh, according to Mo's autobiography, he joined first in the winter of 1922 at the Prospect Theater in Brooklyn. I was unable to find any Ted Healy appearance at the Prospect Theater in Brooklyn ever. Uh, and Healy did not join up with his wife, Betty, until 1923. Mo states it was with you know Ted and Betty that he, he joined the act. So so Mo's, like I said, said earlier, his dates are a little bit off. Yeah. Um, they weren't built. You know, yeah. Ted Healy was the star of the act, and yeah. uh, Mo and Shemp, who were getting you know uh, little pieces of action here and there, were just total underlings. They were stooges for a reason. They were yeah. no one came <laughs> to see them. No one came to see them. They everyone had come to see Ted Healy, and um, that's one thing that Stooge fans today tend to forget and get very upset because Healy was the star, and the Stooges were their underlings. And right. people don't understand that. They look at the films today, and this Healy guy, he's not funny. The Stooges are really funny. How did he get? Why did he get all the money? Why was he a star? <laughs> blah, 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 blah. Um, yeah. And there's no apparent reason to to show them because Healy's vaudeville act, where he was, is non-existent. There's no film evidence of it. There's nothing left yeah. to show us. What a great vaudevillian he was! He was the highest paid vaudevillian of his time for a reason. He was mm-hmm. really really good. But we have no evidence. We yeah. have no evidence, and so that's sort of it's sort of sad. And uh, you know, what I tell Stooges fans is, imagine if suppose all the three Stooges films with Curly and Shemp didn't exist. Mm-hmm. The only three Stooges films that existed were Mo, Larry, and Joe Dorita. Your opinion of the Stooges would be very different. Your opinion, you wouldn't need, they would not be held in the same regard. Or yeah. you'd certainly view them in a different way if you had <laughs> no idea about Curly and Shemp. And all you knew was Mo, Larry, and, and Joe Dorita. And it's the same thing with Healy. All we know about Healy is Healy the actor from the 1930s. Right. He stood on his mark. He recited his lines. Mm-hmm. But the Ted Healy of the 1920s, the vaudeville star, we have no record of that. He was somebody who used his wife, his dog. He had stooges. He, he sang. He danced. Uh, he, t- he did a monologue. Um, you know, he was a very, very versatile entertainer. Yeah. And uh, there's just no record of that, which is very sad. He's uh, Ted Healy is really one of the biggest uh, victims of circumstance uh, in, in Hollywood, in my opinion, because uh, had television existed back then, he inevitably would have been the folk, the first host of the Tonight Show. He would have been the first host of the Academy Awards. He, he was such a natural entertainer, and he was the first choice to be a master of ceremonies for all these events because he was so quick-witted and so uh, just naturally funny without having any kind of script. He could improv. Um, 
And none of that is retail. I learned all about this truthfully in the research for the book by reading the reviews, reading yeah. the reviews of these Ted Healy performances. And I got to tell you, I read a thousand of them and each one was better than the next. Each, mm. This guy never got a bad review. Never. Wow. Not one. Not one bad review. Uh, it's such a disconnect because when I watch his films, he's not funny at all. This this is what made <laughs> me look into this. You know, what is, this guy, he's not funny. Yeah. What you know, and and then I started to realize, you know, it says we've not seen the real Ted Healy that the audience were yeah. raving about. We've not seen. Remember, there was no television. There were no, you know, in, in his day, that act would have would have been, you know, a uh, groundbreaking act. I think today only, it seems like nothing. But. I was gonna say, I think the only equivalent would be like uh, Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. Is like their films are okay, but if you've seen any footage of them doing their live stage act you know it's crazy hilarious so you know i i get it you know it's like so um it, it's just too bad you know i i doubt was ted healy ever interviewed ever or was he, he died too young <laughs> uh he did radio shows but i don't think there's any you know serious interviews they didn't right. do like serious yeah. interviews and, and curly howard's the other one there's no interviews with curly it's right that's sad. interesting nothing no, yeah. Curly, yeah there are no interviews even the ones they did with mo and larry they, they're sort of goof they're not like serious interviews they're right. just sort of you know goofing around mm -hmm. um I don't know. I guess that's the nature of the the Hollywood papers back then and whatever. Yeah. But there was no yeah. serious reporting. There was, you know, the outlet for that. There were there were no uh, there was no Entertainment Tonight TV shows or things like right. that back then. Um, but it seemed like unless there was some scandal like with Fatty Arbuckle or something, they didn't want to delve into the lives of comedians. They just wanted them to be funny, and that was about it. You yeah, know, you're right. Scandal was scandal was to be avoided. So. Yeah. Uh, so even if they appeared on tonight show with Joey Bishop or something, it was still or the Mike Douglas show, like I said with Mo, it was mainly shtick more than, you know, a serious interview. You know, well, tell me about this, you know, you know, your feelings about the Vietnam War or something, you know, they wouldn't ask. Yeah, that. no, no, you no, they, there was there was none of that. <laughs> you know. No. Um No, they just uh, towed the line. Yeah, there was no um Yeah, they had public publicity departments in Columbia that put out stuff that maybe half of it was true, maybe. You know. <laughs> <laughs> One of the other things I'm happy about the book, like I said, I jumped ahead just to, because I was curious, uh, is you actually even cover the new Three Stooges after uh, Mo and Larry retired. And uh, was that hard to research on that part? Well, yeah, because there really wasn't anything. Okay. Um, <laughs> I guess uh, after, you know, Joe Dorita thought he had a few miles left in the tank <laughs> and uh, he hooked up with a couple of other guys, uh, Frank Mitchell and, uh, and Mousy Garner. And um, I don't know if they had much success finding gigs, truthfully, mm -hmm. because even the real Three Stooges were having trouble finding gigs at that point. So True. you can imagine the fake Three Stooges, they were called, I'm just calling them that, the, the, the new Three Stooges. And then they secured the permission of Mo Howard to call themselves the new Three Stooges. Right. Um, it lasted six months, maybe tops and uh, <laughs> only a few only a few jobs. Do you know anything of the content? Is it the same age old? act on stage or did they try new material or different material well mousy gardner was very uh he was very musical he did a lot of piano shtick so i think they did uh some shtick that was based around mousy's piano act his, his uh, las vegas uh lounge lizard kind of act that he did <laughs> um yeah i imagine it was similar to um you know, it was similar to what the boys did, but not not really. Um, yeah, yeah. He, I think Massey's bit was called Prof Professor Piano. His, his bit was called Professor <laughs> Piano. And, yeah. uh, you know, every time he hit a wrong note, 
uh, he'd get a slap or something like that. You know, it, it, it was, you know, a silly, stupid thing. Um, yeah. You know, sort of like the Niagara Falls. Every time he'd, Niagara Falls, Curly would get whatever. So every time Mousy would hit the wrong note, he'd get boom, boom, slap, slap, you know, something like that. <laughs> um did uh, I, I? I'm sure because we probably would have already discussed this by now. Was there any footage of that act or photos or anything no, no. on stage? Really fortunately, fortunately, <laughs> not that I'm aware of. No. There's some okay. still photos. They posed for some still publicity photos. Mm-hmm. Uh, two or there's two or three, you know, that have survived, and it's a pretty spooky looking trio. I gotta tell you, mm. it's a pretty, pretty, pretty spooky looking. Yeah. Now, what about the the one version? I I am always confused about the dates. Where there was a version that was supposed to be Curly Joe, Mo, and uh, Emil Sitka. Uh, when was that supposed to be? What year? Uh, I'm gonna say that was in seventy one, seventy one, okay. seventy two. Okay, because I've heard um, any date arranging from seventy to seventy five, and it's like. Uh, you I don't know, think it'd be talking, that late, but you know, it's I, like I was I, just gonna I would have to check my records to get the exact. It might be late nineteen seventy, but okay. it clearly was after so clearly sometime after early nineteen seventy when Larry right. suffered the stroke, and it would have been, you know, uh well before late seventy. So I would say it was late seventy or seventy one, something like that. But that those that those plans never never materialized. Mm-hmm. Um before I have you do a final promotion of everything in the book, I just wanted to ask one other thing. Um, are you actively involved? Aren't they uh, currently restoring the Stooges shorts uh, for Blu-ray at this point? Is is that what I've heard recently? Uh, that may be the case. I have no idea what Columbia is doing with those okay, films. So you're not I'm not, I'm not privy to them. Okay. Um, I guess fans would be happy if that happened, but I don't want to say that it's happened. Their treatment okay. of the Stooges has uh not been great over the years so i don't i'm not going to hold i'm not going to hold my breath okay for that because i had a friend who was just asking me a quick question he said it was like a set coming out through kit parker films or something like that and i i didn't know anything more about it than you know than that and you know if you're not working on it well then you know well i don't i don't i don't have any rights or anything to do with films um so anything that columbia may be doing if they're planning to issue some kind of blu-ray i it, it'll be after Blu-ray doesn't exist anymore. Is what's right. probably going to happen. <laughs> uh, they waited. They waited to issue the DVDs until, you know. Yeah. So well, I, I am actually surprised and happy that virtually everything that came out at Columbia, at least, is out. I don't think there's anything. Yeah. Eventually, ev- eventually, yes. Eventually, they got it out. Uh, the yeah. haphazard way they started with the VHS tapes right, and right. The DVDs was just. <laughs> incredibly frustrating incredibly frustrating right, as a I fan that. yes um yeah. <laughs> you know the no rhyme or reason to the releases and the haphazardness and the craziness of the prices and the irregularity of the releases and just everything about it was was but but now it's all good uh we have you know all the films that are known and uh mm-hmm. in pretty decent quality yeah it is kind of surprising because there always seems to be like I guess there's some early, early pre-Columbia stuff that's missing, but for the most part, uh, most of the Stooges' uh, film career is, is exists. It's not like lost or whatever, you know. Uh, no, there's only one or two films that are believed to be quote, you know, lost, where we've got no known negative print, nitrate, nothing, nothing exists. But uh, for the most part, uh, everything has been saved. We're not, we're not missing very much that's significant at all 
it's actually pretty incredible. <laughs> um, so what's next for Gary Lassen? I guess you're going to continue doing the Three Stooges Journal, but are there any more books, or is this like the book you were planning to do? <laughs> well, I'm going to take a month or two off, and okay. uh, you know, and and there's a likelihood that I'm going to discover some more appearances now, and um, play around. I'm I'm not sure that there's going to be another book. Okay. Or another, sure going to be another book, but book certainly or... the Three Stooges Journal is going to continue as long as I can do it. Mm -hmm. um, if I come up with something book worthy, I would certainly consider it. Mm -hmm. I can't think of anything myself because I mean, I, well, I, there is a book I would like to write, but I don't have the information, which is a biography of Shemp Howard. Yeah, there's two that are there are two that are in the works. Yeah, but they're not going to be as good as a book that I could write. And I don't think I could write a very good book. So I'm sort of, <laughs> there's just not enough out there. There's not enough out there uh, to justify that. that I don't have new stuff. Right. Um, so, but that's the book that really needs to be written is the Shemp Howard autobiography. That's true. I'd actually, so welcome, we've got, I'd actually welcome another Curly book. I mean, I like the Curly book that Joan Howard Moore was involved with, but uh, it seems like, a, 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 another voice writing would be interesting, you know. Um, yeah, someone has worked. Someone, I don't want to give away any names, but there's someone who has been working on a curly book, but I, I think it may have stalled. Hmm. Um, uh, but that certainly wouldn't be anything coming up soon. But the the champ is a, is is a major void. Um, yes, yeah, I agree. <laughs> you know, and with two two in the works, I'm not sure what they're going to do and how what information they're going to present. But um, maybe we'll learn something new. Yeah. Well, one of them he has an invitation. Uh, one of the authors has an invitation. He's been on this podcast before uh, when his champ book is done. So um, hopefully uh, he will. Uh, bring some facts to yeah, life is that is that is that bird or jeff uh i think the what, what's the first name i'm sorry bert bert Kearns? Bert. yeah, yeah bert's yeah. been the one that's been on me uh on yeah i know nothing about i know nothing about what he's doing yeah i don't either because <laughs> when i i asked him to be on this show i said hey you're writing a shemp book and he says well i'd rather talk about my other book which i did you know and it's like <laughs> because his other book had just come out so i said well when why you, you yeah i know why i oughta <laughs> but you know so he did the bait and switch with me he says well i'll talk about uh, my career i'll talk about my other book but uh, the shemp book's not done and i go okay fine you know so this is my first real stooges episode yeah. so i appreciate this so um Let's see. Are you making any uh, personal appearances or anything to promote this book in the next few months? Well, invite me somewhere and I'll decide if I'm going to go. Right. Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, truthfully, I'm a behind the camera guy. I'm not like not so much of an in-person guy, but I'm not a, I'm not totally averse to it. There are some okay. film festivals uh, in Glendale, California, Thanksgiving weekend. They do a big show. And I'm thinking about maybe going out there and doing that. Or there's Hollywood collector shows out there and uh annual annual film festival here at the ambler theater in uh, my area and uh yeah, it depends if i can move some books i maybe would do it and chat with the fans give them an eye poke or two <laughs> anyway uh, <clears throat> well i hope you at least make it out to some east coast ones i'd love it if you made it out to a west coast show um but you know i'm in oregon so i don't know if there'd be one up here it'd probably be down in california if you did but anyway um uh that's pretty much 
all I have to ask, but I'll lift this up one more time. Uh, okay, so it's called A Tour de Forest Complete History of the Three Stooges on the Road by Gary Lassen. How does somebody get this doorstop <laughs> sent to their well, home? Well, it has its own website, which is tourdeforest.net, T-O-U-R-D-E-F-A-R-C-E, tourdeforest.net. has all the information about the book and ordering it. And uh, I would say maybe if you come back in about a week or so, you'll be able to get it on Amazon and eBay also. Okay, very good. And uh, you even include, and I'll show this just because I'm doing a little video portion here for myself, um, a sticker with an autograph. So you can stick that. I've been told. I've been told that that's called a book plate. I didn't know that. Book plate. Plate. I didn't know what a book plate was, (laughs) but my staff informed me that that is not a sticker. It's indeed a book plate. Okay, a book plate. I stand corrected. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. Right. <laughs> anyway, and I learned uh, the, dif- the difference between a sticker and a book plate is about a dollar. Yes. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I appreciate uh, speaking with you, Gary, and uh, thank you for being on the Fun Ideas podcast. Love and... to have it. Thanks for having me. All right. And we will have another guest, special guest next time on the next episode of Fun Ideas Podcast. This is Mark Arnold speaking. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Gary Lassen, for being my special guest. Remember, you can always watch the video version of this episode on YouTube. This is the final episode of Season 6. Episode 217 and Season 7 will be coming soon. If you would like to comment and or be a guest on this podcast, please drop me a line at funideas.mark at gmail.com. Become a patron of Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions. If everyone listening just contributed a dollar a month, that would be a tremendous help in continuing the production of my books and this podcast. Also, subscribe to my YouTube channel. The opening and closing music for the Fun Ideas podcast is provided courtesy of Andrew the Slow Poisoner Goldfarb and is used with permission. This has been the Fun Ideas podcast. This is Mark Arnold speaking. This episode is copyright 2022. Fun Ideas Productions. Thank you and good night.